Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're in Ezekiel chapter 9. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, raise your hand. We'll get you one to you so you can follow along. So last week we studied Ezekiel 8. And Ezekiel 8, chapter 8 through chapter 11 is actually all one vision that Ezekiel received. He received several visions, but chapters 8 through 11 is basically one vision. We only covered chapter 8 last week, and we're going to look at the rest of it this week. In chapter 8, God shows Ezekiel how he views the secret sin of his people. And so Ezekiel was taken in a vision back to the temple. He's in Babylon, remember. He's in exile with a group of Jews in Babylon. In, in a vision, God takes him back to Jerusalem, takes him into the temple, takes him beyond into the temple, into the closed chambers, because there were a lot of chambers that built around the temple, behind closed doors. And there he sees these abominations, these, the priests and the elders and, and women worshiping idols. And, and we talked all about that last week. If, you, if you're interested in it, of course, you can read chapter 8, but you can also go back to the internet and listen to it or, or podcast it if you want. Um, subscribe to that. But so in chapter 8, God shows Ezekiel the secret sins and how he views the secret sins of the people behind closed doors. And he wants to communicate, or he is communicating to the remnant of Jews, because again, Ezekiel's in Babylon and there's a group of Jews with him. Uh, he wants to communicate to those Jews there um, why. He is going to destroy the temple and why he's going to destroy uh, Jerusalem and why he's going to allow Babylon to take it over. Now, in Ezekiel's day, there were false prophets in Jerusalem, or excuse me, back in Babylon, actually. And uh, they were among the exiles and they were telling the exiles, you know, this is temporary. Uh, God's, you know, I mean, look at Jerusalem still standing, the temple still standing. Don't get too comfortable here in Babylon because God's going to deliver us and we're going to go back and, and he's going to just destroy the Babylons because we're the chosen people. I mean, that was the attitude that they had. Um, so in this vision, God also counters those false teachings and shows Ezekiel that God, that he, his presence, he's going to depart from the temple and he's going to depart from Jerusalem. And he's going to show that uh, to Ezekiel. And, uh, and then basically the, the follow-along to that is, and through more of Ezekiel's prophecies, he's going to be told, uh, you know, settle down. <laughs> Build houses, plant fields, hang out, because you're going to be here for a while. And in fact, they were in Babylon for 70 years in captivity. So that was... Chapter 8, I'm kind of summarizing the whole vision, but in chapters 9 through 11, God is going to show how His glory departs Israel, and it's going to occur in three phases in these chapters. And as we progress through them, we'll, we'll talk about that and explain that. So beginning with chapter 9, verse 1. Again, this is right kind of we're right just kind of picking up in the in the middle of his vision. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. 
One among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So in this vision now, six men are called by God to, to do his work. He gives them commands. They are presumably, although we're not told, we're, they, presumably these are angels. Um, angels are ministering spirits. We find out in the scriptures in the New Testament that God's, they, I mean, they, they're standing around the throne of God and God sends them on missions to do his work. And so he's called these six men and they're probably angels. Five of these men have battle axes with which to slay people. But there's one man in there. There's six of them. Five of them have battle axes. One man, Ezekiel notices, man, this guy stands he stands apart. There's something different about him. First of all, he's clothed in linen. Now, we're not told what the other five were clothed in, but obviously this one is clothed in linen. These other ones were clothed somehow differently. So that's the first thing Ezekiel says. Oh, this, this guy's dressed in white, you know, because linen is white. Um, and he doesn't have a battle axe in his hand. Instead, he has an inkhorn for writing. You know, in the temple, there was one man in service to the Lord in the temple, who wore linen when he ministered. And that was the high priest. All the other priests wore different, but the high priest wore linen in the temple. And linen, which again is white, is a symbol of purity. Verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Verse 5. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before them, uh, excuse me, who were before the temple. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So in this vision, the one man who stands apart, dressed in linen with the inkhorn in his hand, or by his side, is to go through the city and he's to mark the foreheads of each person who grieves over the sin that's, being, uh, that's being, going on there in Jerusalem. The other five men with battle axes are to follow behind. They're to go out and they're to slay all the rest. The young women, the little children. That sounds so severe, doesn't it? Uh, you know, just kill the rest of them. Slay them. Those who don't grieve over the sins being committed. This one man dressed in linen, he's doing the work of the high priest. See, he's acting as a mediator between God and sinful man. And he's marking certain individuals for salvation, sparing them from death. Those who grieve over the sin that's occurring all around them, I mean, they're not, obviously they're not participating, and it's just grieving their hearts. 
they are going to be supernaturally spared from death at the hands of the Babylonians. These will be the remnant that are left in Jerusalem who are going to escape death, and they're going to join the rest of the captives in exile in Babylon, but their lives are going to be spared. Now, during the Great Tribulation, we find out in the book of Revelation, there's, God sends another angel, maybe it'll be the same one, who's going to similarly, he's going he's to be sent to mark the foreheads of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists to protect them through the Tribulation. They're going to be marked, the, the, the Antichrist is not going to be able to harm them during the Tribulation. So there's a, we're seeing kind of a pattern here. Now, just as Ezekiel was given an insight into the sin of the people in chapter 8, in these chapters here, now he's given an insight into the work of the coming great high priest, Jesus Christ. Notice that there is specifically one man who does the work of the evangelist. There's five slavers, but there's one man who does the work, uh, not of an evangelist, of a mediator. And you know what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.5? For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So this angel is really a picture of Jesus Christ here in the Old Testament and the work that Jesus Christ does. There's one mediator between God and men. You know, Buddha's not going to save you. You know, all, all these other people, they're not, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. Also note that there are only two categories of people in this passage of Scripture. Those who are marked for salvation and those who aren't. There's no middle ground here, folks. Um, you know, we tend to put ourselves and others into various categories, don't we? I mean, you know, uh, you know, there's the there's the those that are, you know, they're they're really good people. They go to church. They're really good people, but you know, I'm not not really sure if they're saved. And we kind of fit them into this kind of kind of an iffy category. God doesn't view people that way. They're either saved or they're not saved. That's it. They're either marked for salvation or they're not marked for salvation. Those who are marked for for salvation, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and the rest are not. And that's how God views the world. Now, we don't do that sometimes, right? Sometimes we kind of, have, we kind of fudge those categories in our minds and, and the way we interact with people. You know, Christmas season, of course, obviously, <laughs> is right upon us. And I know, you know, for some of you, in fact, probably for most of us, it's a time of getting together with family, extended family, maybe family you hadn't seen, you know, or maybe family you don't really care for, but, you know, you get together because it's Christmas time. It's a family thing. And so we might have extended family gatherings, and more than likely it's going to include unsaved family members. Not only that, but if you have a job or you have a group of friends that maybe you grew up with or whatever, you're going to probably be invited to or maybe even host holiday parties. I mean, this is the season, right? This time, I mean, the women are doing a, a holiday party this evening, you know, and we're going to have get togethers and they are probably going to include unsaved friends and unsaved coworkers, more than likely that's going to occur. My encouragement to you this morning is to view them the way God views them. Because if you view them the way God views them, you know, they're either born again or they're not born again, then you're going to interact with them a certain way. 
you know, we're to, now it's, I'm not saying don't go and don't hang out with your unsafe parents because we're, you know, we're the hands and the voice. Jesus has given us the ministry of evangelism. He's made us ambassadors to this world. And so for you and I, if we get together with these unsaved friends, remember there's only two categories that God views people. They're either saved and they're not saved. And so in light of that, pray for them and, you know, interact with them with that in mind. In other words, go ahead and be with them and enjoy that time, but be a light shining in the darkness instead of participating in their darkness. Because sometimes that's a temptation. You know, you just, you know, I'm just going to be with them and, you know, I'm with my unsafe friends and I'm just going to, we're just going to fellow, you know, have fun, you know, and stuff. And, and I'm not saying don't have fun, but view them the way God views them. They're either saved or they're not saved. You know, Wednesday night we had a really good Bible study. We were in Second uh, Corinthians and one of the people in our, in, in, the, in the group there, because we have a discussion on Wednesday nights, um, talked about the fact that he's been really challenged not to compartmentalize his faith. And I think that is so fitting with what we're talking about here. You know, uh, you know, we have this spiritual life. Now, everybody's in their spiritual compartment this morning, right? Because we're at church, and so we've got to act like we're not sinners. You know, we've got to smile like everything's going on good in our lives. We didn't fight on the way here to church. And, you know, we're just, everything's good. And, and we're just, you know, praise God. You know, we've got that, at, we're, we've compartmentalized. But the rest of the life, you know, the rest of our week, it's like, ah, you know, this guy cut me off in traffic, that jerk, you know, and we, and we get all, you know, we get in the flesh, right? And the challenge for you and I is not to compartmentalize our faith, but to live our spiritual lives in front of your unsaved friends and family as well as you do like here in this fellowship. So view God the way, or view people the way God views people. They're either saved or they're not. Now also notice, God tells the five men with battle axes, He says, begin at my sanctuary. He didn't say, just go out and get all those heathen, you know, all those dirty, rotten people out there. Begin at my sanctuary. And they're to do that before they continue through the rest of the city. And I think that's significant because the Bible teaches us that judgment always begins with the house of God. Those of us who call ourselves Christians, you know, if you call yourself a Christian, what does that mean? In, in the New Testament days, it meant you were a little Christ. It was a derogatory term. Oh, you little Jesus. You act just like him, you know. And the, the believers then are like, wow, I don't, I don't even feel worthy to be called little Christ. And, and so for them, it was a badge of honor. And today we just Christian. You can talk to anyone in the neighborhood. Are you Christian? Sure, I'm an American. What are you talking about, you know? And, and we have this, this kind of this relaxed attitude about being a Christian. And sometimes we ourselves have that attitude. But being a Christian means you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It means you've given your life to Jesus. He's the Lord of your life. He doesn't just save you. He's your Lord. And we call ourselves Christians. We profess that. But our actions deny that we're Christians. You know, there, there's, a, there's an issue there. And so judgment begins with you and I. Because to you and I, who the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And you've been given the truth of scriptures. You even claim, I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, then start living like a Christian. So he tells them, begin at my sanctuary. In verse 3 of that portion that we wrote about, or read about, excuse me, Verse 3 is phase 1. It's the first phase of God's presence 
departing Israel. It says the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been. What is Ezekiel talking about? He's talking about being in the Holy of Holies and seeing the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant was just a little box, basically, and it had the Ten Commandments in it. It had the rod that Aaron held that budded, and it had a jar of manna. That was it. But it was to symbolize God's covenant with his people. And God, when he told Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant, he said, build that Ark and then put a gold cover on it, a lid, so to speak, and it had angels on them called cherubim. And they were facing each other, and God says that it goes back to that. In fact, let me read it to you, Exodus twenty five eighteen. He says, And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They shall shall face one another. Um, uh, The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put in the testimony that I will give you. And listen to this. And there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give uh, give to you in the commandment to the children of Israel. So in this first phase of God's glory departing, Ezekiel says, hey, he's going up from the cherubim where he had been to the threshold of the temple. He's going from that place of intimate fellowship with his people to the to just to the edge, just to the doorway of the temple. And you see, indwelling sin in your and my hearts always hinders that close communion with the Lord. You might say, well, I've got a good relationship with the Lord. Well, if you're walking in sin, no, you don't. I can guarantee you don't because sin hinders that relationship. It, it hinders that communion, that close communion. And so the Lord's presence goes from his dwelling place above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple. And then he commands these six angels to do the work that he's assigned them. Verse 8. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone. This is Ezekiel speaking. And I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? God is not just working through Ezekiel, the prophet. You know, he made him a prophet to his people. But God is also working in Ezekiel. He's making Ezekiel more like him. Ezekiel here, he sees the killers going out, and he just starts weeping over the destruction that sin has caused to God's people. I mean, it just breaks his heart, and he starts weeping over the lives of the people. When was the last time you wept over the life of someone you knew that wasn't saved? Man, that's, that's God's heart, that our hearts would break over people that don't have a relationship with him. The Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And Ezekiel, he just sees the destruction and it just, it just breaks his heart. And God's making him more like him. And then Ezekiel asks the Lord to spare a remnant. And again, that's just like God. Because the Bible also tells us that God desires that all men be saved. 
I mean, after all, he sent his son to die for the sins of the world, right? Not just a few people, for the entire world, that all men might come to faith in Christ. Verse 9, Then he said to me, this is God responding to Ezekiel, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just then the man with linen, clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. You know, nothing in the scriptures is insignificant or just like, oh, I wonder why they put that. There's just kind of a coincidental thing. Just like when Jesus was on the cross, this angel's doing the same thing. He reports back to the Father and says, I've done what you've commanded me to do. And when Jesus, our mediator, was dying on the cross, his very last words are, it's finished. I've completed the task. He's completed the task of mediation for you and I. He paid the price for your and our sins, my sins, never to die again on a cross. You know, that's why there's a cross. Some people have Jesus on the cross. My mom used to tell me that when I was a kid. I'm like, why do some crosses have Jesus on the cross and some crosses don't? She says, that's because Jesus died. He, it's done. He's not on the cross anymore. It's finished. And that's what this angel, again, a picture of Jesus Christ. says, Man, I've, com- I've done what you've commanded me to do. Chapter 10, verse 1. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of, the th- of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals from the fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Notice the man clothed in linen does nothing until God directs him to. He's just standing there, and then God says, go do this, go do that, and then he does something. And Jesus said in John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Wouldn't that be cool if that was our attitude? I don't do nothing until the Holy Spirit tells me what to do. And we just are led by the Spirit in everything that we do. Because that's the way Jesus lived his life. Verse 3. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the, mouth, when, the man, excuse me, when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard, even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when He speaks. Verse 6, Then it happened, when He commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, that He went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out His hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim, and took some of it, and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. When Ezekiel sees the one man clothed in white linen earlier in his vision, the man's doing the work of a mediator, the high priest. You know, he's marking the foreheads of those who are saved, who aren't going to die. Now that one man 
is to take burning coals. And notice, he's not told to take burning coals off the, burnt, the altar burnt offering there. He's told to take it among, from among that was burning among the cherubim and scatter it in the city. Why? This is my belief. The inhabitants of the city, except for those faithful remnant who are marked, they've forsaken the peace of God that comes from the sacrifice that's burned upon that altar. They've forsaken it. So God's not going to give them the fire from that altar. Now, instead of mediation, they're going to experience fire from God's wrath. And you go, whoa, wait a second, wait a second. I thought that was a picture of Jesus Christ, you know, the Savior of the world. The Bible says He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. You know, what, what are you talking about? Well, you see, Christ's first coming, He was the Lamb of God, right? John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb. In fact, we even sang that this morning. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But Jesus Christ is coming back a second time. And that time, He's not coming back as the Lamb of God. He's coming back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And He's going to measure out God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. What God also is communicating, I believe, to Ezekiel is that this coming fire of judgment that's going to be inflicted upon Jerusalem, although it's going to come at the hands of the Babylonians, ultimately it's been decreed by God. They're just His instruments of wrath. Ultimately, God says, this is my judgment on my people. They they give those dirty, rotten Babylonians, those evil people. Yeah, but God sent them because of their sin. But also, I think it's even a picture, uh, there's even more to this picture. Because in, Ju- uh, excuse me, in Luke chapter 12, 49, Jesus says this. He says, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. That's a very odd statement for Jesus to say. The context of that passage in Luke chapter 12 is how Christ starts saying how he's going to bring division, even in close relationships of parents and children, husbands and wives. And I think he's referring back to that, the fact that there's two categories of people alive on this planet. Those whose sins have been forgiven and they've been born again, and those who reject Christ's sacrifice for them and are not born again. And Jesus is the line in the sand. And, and it's going to cause a burning away. And, and for you and I who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're on that other side of the, the line of sand. We're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to come in, if you're following Jesus, you're going to come into conflict with your unsaved friends and your unsaved family. You're going to be, come in conflict with the world because there's, there's, there's a dividing line. I mean, you can talk to unsaved people about God. You know, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. You know, you can, you know, God's all around us. You know, and you, and you get into some really, really wacky conversations, but then start mentioning Jesus Christ and watch how, boom, <laughs> it's like, it's like the Star Trek thing. Put up your shields, you know, the, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you can't penetrate. Verse nine. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim. One wheel by one cherub, and another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of a barrel stone. And as for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, 
They went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went, and their whole body with their backs and their hands, their wings and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing, wheel. So it's like, okay, they look like wheels, but all of a sudden they must be wheels because someone said, hey, that's a wheel. That's kind of how I interpret that. Now, I'm not going to dig into this too much in depth because we really did cover this, the significance of a lot of this in chapter one. And it's on the web. You can go and listen to it or you can, again, you can download the podcast in chapter one and and pull out your Bible and you can study along with it. Um, But... It's interesting here that there's a different word used in this verse. There's two different words. The wheel, or the wheels, excuse me, is the word ophan, and it's an unused root word meaning revolution, something that's turning, basically. And so that's how, I guess, the interpreters or translators say, well, it must mean a wheel. Um, the wheel, where he says, and they called it the wheel in my hearing, that word is a Hebrew word, galgal, and it means a whirlwind. Now, I'm not that smart. I'll be the first to tell you. I don't really know what the significance is. I don't have no, so no deep theological thing as to why uh, there's two deep, different Hebrew words and, and stuff. But I think the significance is in the action, the revolving and the whirlwind. And personally, I think this is God revealing to Ezekiel the fact that God is always moving. He's always in action. And I think that's an important thing for us as Christians to understand. God is always working. He's always about his business. Because sometimes, you know, we pray and we ask God for, to, you know, Lord, do this in my life. And it seems like God doesn't answer. And we go, wow, God, I mean, it's like, it's like he's not doing anything. But I can assure you, God is behind the scenes working in our lives. I remember when I was when I walked away from the Lord and I wasn't walking with the Lord and I was in rebellion against him and and you know God was still working even during that time even though I didn't recognize it because he was weaving things and putting things into position putting me into places where all of a sudden I you know I'm in a place where I'm I'm, I'm like I'm confronted with my sin and I'm confronted with the argument of my sin because I was justifying what I was doing. And all of a sudden, that justification, was the rug was just pulled out from underneath me. And it's like, I have nothing to stand on. And, and it, that did a number on my head. <laughs> and over a course of about a week or so, I gave my heart back to the Lord. Never looked back since then. God's always at work in our lives, folks. Verse 14. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, the second face the face of a man, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature that I saw by the river Chebar. That's referring back to chapter 1. This vision of the living creatures is almost identical in many ways. There's a few differences, but in many ways it's the same vision that he sees in chapter 1 and he describes to us. And Ezekiel himself tells us plainly, this is the same creature. This is the same, same thing that, we, that I saw by the river Cherubim, or excuse me, Cherubim, Chebar. <laughs> he also tells us, which he didn't in, in chapter 1, he tells us in this chapter, hey, these are Cherubim. You know, he, he recognizes that these are Cherubim. Uh, now there are some variations in the description 
And I don't really know what the reason why. It could be possibly because Ezekiel is in a closer range to them, or maybe there's a longer duration. This was definitely seemed like a longer vision than the first one. So, he, you know, he's seeing it. Plus, the second time, you maybe notice things that you didn't notice before. One thing I find interesting that's noticeably absent from this second vision is the appearance of a rainbow. Isn't that interesting? In the first vision, there was a rainbow. There was something that resembled a rainbow. And in this vision, Ezekiel doesn't see it. And you have to go, well, what's the significance of that? Well, what was the rainbow? Remember, after the flood, God said, hey, I'm going to put my rainbow in the sky. And that's a sign of my covenant between God and between me and, and you. I'm never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. That was God's mercy. But you see in this vision here, God's glory is departing and judgment is right around the corner for them. And there's no more mercy here. The absence of the mercy here because of their sin. Judgment is pending. There's nothing that's going to stop them. One thing I think that's also interesting is the description of the faces. Because we had uh, these four descriptions of the faces of each face in chapter 1. And one of them here is not described as an ox, but it's described as the face of a cherub. Because one of them, remember, one was a, uh, what was it, a a, uh, ox, an eagle. Uh, Somebody help me here because I don't have it in front of me. What's that? A lion, thank you. And there was and a man. There you go. And we talked about how the symbolism with, with the four gospels. Well, anyways, the ox is not, and now he says it's a face of a cherub. Now some people say that the cherub's face resembles an ox. I've never seen a cherub, so I can't tell you. But um, but it's interesting because their reasoning behind it is that's why the Israelites set up a golden calf to worship it because it resembled a cherub. You know, hey, sounds like a reasonable thing. I'll be honest with you, though. I don't make too much out of the difference. I don't get all, oh, what's the matter? This, you know, it's not the exact same thing. Um, because in the first vision, maybe he was unsure what the creatures were. But in this vision, he says, man, they're cherubim. And what he's going to say in verse 22 is going to kind of clench it for me. But we'll get to that here. Verse 15. When the cherubim went... The wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up. For the spirit of the living creature was in them. Again, that goes back to our study in chapter 1, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord, excuse me, the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Here is the second phase of God's glory departing Israel. First it left from the Holy of Holies, from residing above the cherubim where he met with Israel to the threshold of the temple. And now the glory of the Lord departs from the temple altogether, and it rests on the real cherubim. The other ones were just a symbol. You know, the Bible in Hebrews says that those, the things that, you know, the tabernacle, the temple, all the furnishings, all of that is a copy and shadow of what takes place in heaven. And so God, His glory, His presence goes from that, that symbol there in the Holy of Holies, and now He's resting on top of the real cherubim outside of the temple at the east gate. So He's, he's departed from the temple at this point. Verse 20 
And now this is why I say that the, the whole thing about the faces is not an issue for me. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chabar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, and each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same faces which I had seen by the river Chabar. So that's, that's okay. That, I don't even need to study it anymore. Their appearance and their persons, excuse me, and the likenesses of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chabar, their appearance in their purses, persons. They each went straight forward. We're going to get into chapter 11 here. Verse 1. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And there at the door of the gate were 25 men, among whom I saw Jeazaniah the son of Azur, and Pelatea, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city, who say, the time is not near to build houses. This is the city, excuse me, this city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of men. So we get this two men mentioned in this vision. Jeazaniah, we talked about him last week because he was one of the ones that was in the temple there um, with the idol worship. And then Pelatea, they're both leaders of the people back in Jerusalem. And they are here quoted mocking Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah was a prophet before Ezekiel, and he was probably alive at the same time as Ezekiel, but he was older, and he prophesied much earlier than Ezekiel in Jerusalem. And in chapters 1, verse 13 of Jeremiah, he prophesies, he has the vision of the boiling pot. And so what these guys are saying, they're mocking Jeremiah's thing, like, yeah, you know, nothing's happened. He's, you know, he's talking about this, this judgment that's coming, and here we are. Basically, what they are saying is we're as safe as meat in a boiling pot. Now, I don't, that's probably something we don't would say. I'm as safe as a meat in a pot, you know. But again, you go back to their culture, right? What they meant was they're protected from the fire of judgment by the walls of Jerusalem because they took a lot of pride in their city. The tall walls of Jerusalem. They, man, they're safe among the walls of Jerusalem just as meat is protected from fire inside the walls of a pot. That's the way I look at it. Verse 5. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Your slain whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron. But I shall bring you out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God. And I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments on you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel. In other words, you're going to be out of the city. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which is all around you. 
One thing I think is, is significant here, remember earlier when Ezekiel was first commissioned by the Lord? Ezekiel gave him this vision, uh, a vision of his glory there by the river Chabar, and kind of commissioned him as, an, as a prophet. And then he said, I'm going to make you mute. And so Ezekiel, there were times where Ezekiel couldn't speak. And he said, you're just going to speak what I tell you to speak. And now in this vision here, and Ezekiel did some weird stuff. And it was really like people like he's laying on his side for a year and a half. And what's that all about? Or a year and a month or whatever. And, and he's playing with this like toy, you know, sandbox like Jerusalem. And I mean, what's this guy's weird, you know, what's going on with him? And I think uh, Ezekiel was just unable to, unable to say, well, this is what it means. It was to arouse their curiosity, kind of like when Jesus was speaking in the parables in the New Testament. But now the Lord is commanding Ezekiel to speak. So this vision, that first vision where, where Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord, and it really, I think it was to prepare Ezekiel for a very tough ministry. And to say, you know, God's in control, God's on the throne and everything. Uh, that vision was for Ezekiel. But this vision, he's supposed to speak what he sees. He's supposed to speak about what it's all about. So this vision is not just for his own benefit, but it's to communicate to all the people who are in exile with him there in Babylon. And another thing God reiterates throughout the book of Ezekiel, and we'll come across it many times, he says to them that through this judgment, they will know that he's the Lord. That he's on the throne. That he sees what's going on, and he's going to deal with it. Verse 13. Now it happened, while I was prophesying that Pelatea, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, oh, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel here again. He's just weeping over the destruction of this, this man who is obviously in sin. Verse 14. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. Now, if you understand what God's saying to Ezekiel here, you had... Three phases of people going into captivity during the time that Babylon was a world empire. And, and Ezekiel was among the second wave of exiles going into captivity. There's going to be the, a third final wave when Jerusalem's destroyed and the temple's destroyed. Then the rest of them are going to go into captivity to join the others. The people that had not gone into captivity that were there in Jerusalem, they were self-righteous. They looked, hey, stay away from those guys. God has obviously punished them because they're bad people. Look at they're in captivity. I mean, you know, God's not blessing them because look what they, they're, they're over there. But look at us. I mean, we're God's chosen. We're still in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's still standing. We still have the temple. We, God's house here. God dwells here. You know, we're okay. And they mistook God's silence for God's condoning their sin. And people do that all the time. You know, you wonder, well, God hasn't judged me. Nothing bad's happened, you know, and it's, don't mistake that for God's saying it's okay what you're doing. Don't mistake it. That's a big mistake to make. So these people still living in Jerusalem looked at those who had already been taken into exile as having been judged by God, and they self-righteously believed that they were still in God's favor. Verse 16. 
Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far among the Gentiles, and though I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. God is telling Ezekiel that he and the other exiles with him, God has not utterly forsaken them. Even in judgment, God is merciful. And yes, they were in exile, and yes, life was probably miserable for them. But even in exile, if they turn their hearts back to the Lord, He would be a sanctuary for them, a little sanctuary. He, they'd have a place where they could communicate, and they could be in fellowship with the Lord. And the Bible teaches you and I, it says it in James, draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. When I gave my heart back to the Lord, man, that was a verse that I clung to because that's where I had, I had gone so far away. And it's like, Lord, I'm drawing near to you. And God was faithful and he showed up. And, and you know, I had that relationship with him once more. And so even in, no, no matter where you've gone, no matter how, what you've done in your life, how, how bad you've sinned, how much you've blown it, how far you've gone away, if you turn your heart back to the Lord, man, you're going to be right there in fellowship with him again, wherever you're at. That's how much God loves you. Verse 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel, and they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. God says, you're going to come back. All those that went into captivity, into exile, they're going to come back to Jerusalem They're going to come back to the land. And this was literally fulfilled in the return of the captives in Nehemiah's time and in Ezra's time. You can read it in those books. As a nation, this was fulfilled because the people were cured of their penchant for idolatry. When they came back from Babylon, worshiping idols, now they still didn't recognize Jesus and they went back into exile again for 2,000 years. But... As far as nationally, they were no longer idol worshipers at that time like the nations all around them. They had been cured of that because of their captivity and because of that judgment. Verse 19, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I personally believe this has not been fulfilled on a national scale. Individually, yes. There are people who are in Israel or Jews, even in the United States and all over the world, who have recognized Jesus as their Messiah, and their hearts have turned, you know, they, they, they've given their hearts to the Lord. They're God's people. In fact, they're, they're, you know, they're what we would call, you know, fulfilled Jews. I don't know. There's different ways, different ways people call themselves that. But Individually, yes. Nationally, no. Yeah, there's a nation of Israel, but they're not as one people turn their heart back to the Lord God. In fact, it's a very atheistic nation, to be honest with you. I believe this will be fulfilled at the end of the Great Tribulation when the remnant of Israel alive at that time recognizes Jesus as their Messiah and as a nation nationally at that point they're going to turn in repentance and faith to him now i know that there are some denominations and churches that don't believe this and they say well you know this is not 
a prophecy that's going to be literally fulfilled. In fact, I have a reference book that I was, when I got into Ezekiel, I was kind of looking at it. And it's kind of, it kind of sums up the book of Ezekiel. And it's kind of nice for getting ideas for outlines and stuff, but I don't do outline form, obviously. Uh, but I, I like to look at it and re- read it just when I get into a new book, see what it says. And it talks about this prophecy. And it says, basically it says this, there are some who believe in a literal fulfillment of these prophecies and believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth. There's some that believe this. It acknowledges that. But then it goes on to say what the real symbolism is behind these prophecies. And I go, that's interesting. What's my response to that? I find it interesting that the fulfillment of the prophecies dealing with the judgment of Israel, you can go back through history and you can look and say, man, it was fulfilled literally. I mean, to the, to the letter. It was fulfilled exactly like God prophesied through Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these different prophets. Literally. So how can you categorically say the rest of these prophecies either have been fulfilled symbolically or they're going to be fulfilled symbolically? I, I just have a hard time with that. If everything was fulfilled literally, why all of a sudden now it's got to be symbolically, symbol, you know, symbolism? Now, if you go into the commentaries, and there's a lot of good commentaries. I like to read the commentaries and just, I mean, some of these men from, you know, uh, um, anyways, I was going to rattle off a few names, but my mind is blanking on them. Matthew Henry, there's one. There's a good one. Um, there's some really good commentaries out there. Uh, they, they've got some really good nuggets of insights into scriptures. But you need to realize a lot of those old good ones were written back in the 1800s or even earlier when there was no nation state of Israel. And so they looked at these prophecies and they said, well, you know, the, the, the New Testament, you know, like in Romans, Paul talks about the Jews and talks about Israel. All Israel will be saved. And they go, well, there is no Israel, so this must mean the church. And so they, they take all the promises, the end time prophecies, and say, well, this all applies to the church and not to the state of Israel. And that, you know, I can understand. I would probably have been in the same camp back then because there is no nation of Israel. What do you, you know, it's just got to make sense of it somehow. But now there is a nation state of Israel. What about them? And, you know, either people have to admit that they were wrong and that, you know what, now I I think this is going to get fulfilled literally, or they have to deny the modern state of Israel that that's part of God's plan. I mean, and, and, you know, and I'm not knocking anyone that disagrees with that, you know, interpretation that this is, you know, they have a symbolic thing for this and stuff. I happen to be one that believes in the literal interpretation of this because going on God's track rec- record of everything else has been fulfilled literally. I, I have no reason to believe it's not going to, the rest of it's not going to be fulfilled literally. And that's my personal convictions. Verse 21. But as for those whose hearts uh, follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east of the city. This is the last phase of God's departure in this vision, uh, His presence departing from Israel. Now the glory of the Lord above the cherubim departs from the city, and it rests 
on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And if you've been to Jerusalem, there's a mountain to the east, and it's called the Mount of Olives. So it's probably talking about the Mount of Olives outside of the city. So he's gone from that intimate place, the place where he would meet with his people in the Holy of Holies, in that, in that intimate time of communion. He's left that place to the edge of the, of the temple. Now he's gone, then he's gone from there, and he's resting above the, the real cherubim. And now the cherubim and him, they, they basically went outside of the city. And basically what that meant was that destruction and judgment on Jerusalem is now a foregone conclusion. There's no turning back. It's going to happen. They've rebuffed God's, you know, his, his wooing them over the centuries, over the generations. They've rebuffed them, they've rebuffed them, they've rebuffed them, and now judgment is coming. This also symbolizes that God's hand of protection is now lifted off of his people and the Babylonians are just going to, they're going to pillage. They're going to destroy the city. And many of them, in fact, most of them are going to die by the sword or die by famine or pestilence or fire. And it's just destruction. But you see, that's what sin does. Sin destroys. And, and God doesn't want us to be dwelling in sin. He, he saved us from it. And he doesn't want us to live in that sin that he saved us from. But if we continue to rebuff and rebuff and rebuff, he sometimes lifts his hand of protection and we end up bearing the consequences of those things that when we stubbornly refuse to repent. And so, you know, one thing I notice in here, it's interesting to me how God phased out his departure. You know, we used to have a friend Grew up in Minnesota. He's Minnesotan to the core. And uh, we used to go and visit them at their house. And I remember we would leave their house, you know. And uh, he was just a talker. And he would talk and talk. And he'd talk to us as we are putting on our coats and getting ready to go out to the door. And he'd be talking. We'd go outside into the driveway, and he'd be talking. we walk over to the car. He'd be talking by the car and stuff. We'd get into the car. I'd close the door. And uh, he'd still be talking, so I'd roll down the window, you know. He'd put his hand on the, on the, on the edge of the door. And he would literally be walking as, as I'm backing out of the driveway talking, talking. Okay, okay, bye-bye. We call that the Minnesota goodbye. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? In a sense, it's like God's doing the Minnesota goodbye here. In a sense. Why do I say that? I think that really reveals the heart of God. He's reluctantly departing from his people. God's not there to wipe people out. He's like, okay, you blew it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge you and I'm going to just... God's not like that. God over and over and over again warns us. And he pleads with us and says, turn from your sin. Don't live in that. Change your life. Follow me. Trust me. Trust me in that area that you're not trusting. Trust me, and I'll, be, I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll be your God. I'll, I'll, I'll carry you through that. And for generations and literally hundreds of years, God repeatedly raised up warnings or raised up prophets to warn his people, but now it's time for God to act. Verse 24, Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me, so I spoke to those in captivity of all the things the Lord had shown me, because God gave them permission to. And if you recall the beginning of this vision in chapter 8, there's this group of elders uh, among the exiles, 
And every day they show up at, at Ezekiel's house because he's done some really weird things. And they go, this guy's a prophet. He's got something to communicate. And so they're like, you know what? Let's, let's hang out and see what happens. And so they come, and they basically go into his living room. And Mrs. Ezekiel, I mean, it's probably frustrating her because here's these guys every day. They show up at the house, so you've got to keep the house clean. You know, you can't just give Ezekiel a falafel. You know, you've got to feed all these other guys, you know. And so it's like, okay, we've got to feed 20 again today. And, and, and here they are. They're just sitting there like, what's going to happen? And in this vision, it's kind of interesting. It's like, I don't think... You know, maybe Ezekiel kind of got glassy-eyed. I don't know. I don't think he started shaking. You know, and I don't think he disappeared. Some people think he actually literally disappeared. I don't think so. I think he was just sitting there, and these guys are like, hmm, something's going on. I mean, he's not saying it. He's just staring. It's kind of weird, you know, and now he's crying. Why is he crying, you know, and stuff? And, uh, and then he comes back, basically, and starts sharing with them. Um, I, I just think that's fascinating. We're done with our... We actually covered three chapters. wasn't trying to, but it's all one vision, and I, and I think the message is plainly there, how God phased his departure out um, because he was reluctant. He's reluctant to discipline and, to, and to, to judge his people, and I think he's that way with you and I as well. He's reluctant. He'll, he'll send people to warn us. He'll give us messages to warn us, and he wants us to just surrender our lives to him. And, and he loves you so much. And, and I think that's the message that we see behind all this. So um, why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer.